Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to Top of the Morning on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Our conversation will examine the future of New York in consideration of the impacts felt as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. We will cover everything from residential migration trends, the state of the city's finances, healthcare system, and more. Uh, joining me here for the conversation today, glad to welcome back to Top of the Morning both Tom McLaughlin, head of Fixed Income Americas at as well as Michelle LaLiberty, Thematic Investment Associate Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. So, Tom, Michelle, uh, great to be with you both. Thank you for dropping by. Looking forward to our conversation. Thanks, Dan. Good morning. So, congratulations on the publication. It's a very interesting read. So, looking forward to diving a bit deeper into it with you both. Uh, Tom, maybe as a good starting point, I, I guess, can you explain to us what led to the Chief Investment Office's decision to publish a report on the future of New York? Yeah, sure thing, Dan. The uh, seed of the idea for the report was planted last summer uh, when there was some initial indications that the city was beginning to come back to life after being relatively dormant for more than a year. You know, if you recall, at that time, Broadway shows were going back to rehearsals, some restaurants were reopening, and mobility restrictions were being relaxed just a little bit. Uh, The emergence of the Delta and then the more recent Omicron variants certainly created some temporary obstacles, but the general arc uh, of the local economic recovery uh, has been positive and was beginning to become evident last summer. And as we assembled a group of individuals in the chief investment office to think about how to write a report about just one city, it became apparent pretty quickly that different members of the team had uh, different perspectives about how they viewed New York. When asked about it, some of our colleagues focused on culture, a city of art, for example. Others focused on Wall Street, uh, a financial city. And, And yet others talked about the subways, which are so closely associated with New York or the tourists at Times Square. So from there, it was just a short walk, really, to creating brief chapters discussing how the various sectors of the economy fared during the lockdown, how the city and its residents responded to the pandemic, and then just add our investment outlook, basically what's next for America's most populous city. It turned out to be a really interesting process, and we now have a report that can be read either in one sitting or over time with different chapters on the housing market, commercial real estate, transportation and, and, and other topics. Well, Tom, thank you for that backdrop. I will point out to our clients, our listeners, the publication is available up on UBS.com forward slash CIO for your reference. Though speaking of perspective, Michelle, I know you're actually a resident of New York City, so curious to hear this from your vantage point. What changes have you seen in the past few months that have helped to inform your view of New York post the pandemic? Yeah, thanks, Dan. I think it's a, it's a great question. And um, Um, The first thing that really can come to mind is uh, just how rapidly evolving the situation really was um, throughout the pandemic and uh, just how little clarity uh, we had about what would happen Um, and and businesses had to manage to that. So, you know, one day it was um, indoor dining was allowed again. And then the next day it was outdoor only again. Um, At one point you had to order a meal if you uh, sat down for a drink. Um, But at another point you could get um, to go drinks and to go cocktails. So it was a really hard environment for businesses to manage. Uh, And they had to invest a lot just to stay open. 
but I also I also saw resiliency uh, in the city. It, it did start to to come back, and you know, while some stores closed uh, a few months later, uh, new ones came. So I think it was uh, you know it's, it's been interesting to to witness. I think it's um, you know what we discussed in the report is that it's a kind of a long way to go here um, as the city kind of evolves um, post pandemic. But again, what I saw was resiliency, um, and what I saw were a lot of businesses that were, you know, really um, managing through a very tough environment. Well, it does sound very fluid, keeping track of all of the guidelines. And to your point, Michelle, it is encouraging to hear about some bright spots, as you pointed out. Tom, focusing on the report as a whole, you begin the report with a discussion on the city's finances. So can you give us a quick rundown of where the city budget stands today? Yeah, sure. Of course. Uh, you know, it's interesting. Michelle uh, just used the word resilience, and indeed we entitle the first chapter as the resilient city for a few reasons. Uh, first and foremost, New Yorkers tend to be very resilient characters, and the city has come through a variety of challenges over the past two decades, uh, but also because the city government is obliged to be responsive to an extraordinarily diverse array of residents, business owners, commuters, tourists to the city. And historically, that has made it easier for the city to make spending commitments to various interests before a recurring source of revenue is identified to fund those expenditures. Uh, Fortunately, the city is in better financial shape than it was two years ago, primarily due to the fiscal stimulus uh, and pandemic aid coming from Washington, which uh, on the current date approaches $20 billion dollars. 75% of that total is expected to be spent during the remainder of the current fiscal year, but there's going to be funds carried over and spent over the next three years, which should provide the city with some degree of liquidity for for its own operating budget. Economically sensitive revenue uh, derived from sales and lodging taxes, for example, have rebounded. Uh, While they're still falling short of pre-COVID levels, there there are encouraging signs that revenues uh, will grow quickly on a complete reopening of the city economy. The Adams administration does face one uh, immediate challenge. Uh, Almost all of the labor contracts executed under former Mayor de Blasio have either already expired or will do so by the end of the year. And given the inflation we're seeing in the economy, he will have to actively manage the expectations of public sector labor leaders regarding the, the amount of wage and benefit increases. Uh, that the city can afford. Um, on the positive side of the, of the ledger, uh, pension fund returns have been exceptionally high, and despite the past month's market volatility, should be strong enough to allow the city to reduce employer contributions a bit. So I'd say it's a mixed outlook, uh, but certainly it, it's better than it was pre-pandemic, as paradoxical as that may sound. Well, Tom, thank you for the color on the state of the city's finances. Another portion of the publication worth spending a few moments on this morning, uh, the initial outbreak of COVID-19, it did create extraordinary stress on the city's health care system. I'm sure we all recall that image of that hospital ship coming down the Hudson River. I'm curious, Tom, how has the health care system held up since those early days, the spring of 2020? Yeah, those those were uh, those were difficult days indeed. Uh, here again, uh, federal financial assistance was a critical component in the recovery of the hospital sector. Most of the city's hospitals uh, in New York are not-for-profit institutions. Uh, but many still rely on a mix of revenues, not just Medicare and Medicaid payments, but private insurance to pay for the health care services that they're providing. Once COVID-19 hit the city, elective procedures were deferred to accommodate the critical care needs 
of people succumbing to the coronavirus. Uh, these types of surgeries, and, and here I'm thinking about hip and knee replacements, et cetera, um, tend to generate higher net income for hospitals and offset the losses they sustain in treating um, emergency trauma cases or individuals that use Medicaid and Medicare coverage, which tend to provide lower reimbursements. Uh, New York City hospitals have been subject to capacity constraints with the Omicron variant, but have not been pressured as much as the hospitals located further upstate or in the Western U.S. So in the report, we identify the hospital systems that we believe are better positioned to ride out the final wave of the pandemic. We also expect uh, non-COVID patient volumes to recover and also that the breakdown of the type of care provided to patients should return to normal by next year. Uh, healthcare bonds in the muni market tend to be subject to a bit more volatility than many other types of securities, but they also also deliver better long-term returns. So providing to stick with systems that have reliable cash flows, solid liquidity position, et cetera, they deserve consideration, I think, as part of an investor portfolio. Well, thank you, Tom. Some positive takeaways there with respect to the healthcare system. Uh, Michelle, from prior conversations, our listeners know that you specialize in thematic investing. So I'm curious, how does the future of New York, how does it play into some of the global themes that we have identified in the past? Sure. Uh, thanks, Dan. And, you know, many of the, the themes that we've identified, um, you know, first I'll just take a quick step back and um, a foundational megatrends that have kind of made the basis of these themes, uh, urbanization is one of those. Uh, and even though New York has seen population outflows, um, it's absolutely an urban center. Uh, so it's not too surprising that you know, many of these themes that we've identified are on display here in the city. And just to be clear, I would say that New York is not driving these themes, uh, but these themes are actually helping shape the future of New York, uh, and they're really playing out here in the city. So first uh, thing I would point to, uh, New York is made up of, of islands, right? Manhattan is an island, uh, Long Island, Staten Island, you get, you get the point here. Um, but flooding is a, is a big risk here. And we all saw that um, with Hurricane Ida, right? That essentially you know, shut, the, shut the city's uh, transport down. Uh, residences were badly flooded. And this is just one example. Um, actually, about over 6% of housing, 16% uh, of hospital beds, uh, all 14 wastewater treatment facilities, uh, and 12 of the 27 uh, power plants are in uh, flood zones, flood risk zones. Uh, so New York has put together a, a plan to uh, you know, lay out investments to decarbonize and protect the city against climate risk. Uh, it's called 1NYC 2050. Uh, and I won't go into too many of the, the details, but uh, many of these initiatives, you know, whether it's the offshore uh, wind projects or the uh, tighter restrictions on energy efficiency, these are very much aligned with many of the themes that we've identified, like clean air and carbon reduction and energy efficiency, uh, among others. The, the second part of this, this green angle that I would note is smart mobility. Uh, NYC is actually beta testing right now a new ride hailing service that is entirely electric. Uh, we're seeing lots of e-mobility pop up as well. Um, you know, if you've been in the city recently, you probably saw, uh, you know, one of those blue electric scooters, uh, on the streets. So that's another theme I, I would say is on display here. Um, third thing, I'll just point to to fintech and the, and the future of fintech here. 
New York is a financial hub, so uh, residents and investors alike are, are wondering how this might impact the city. Um, but we do expect New York to remain a financial hub. And in fact, uh, New York does seem to be becoming a home for fintech. And according to, to some recent data, uh, last year the city attracted 46%, so almost half of, of funding that went to blockchain or crypto-related companies. So finally, um, last thing that I'll just point to, um, we do speak a bit in the report uh, about food uh, and just how diverse the restaurant scene is in New York. Um, So many different countries are represented in the restaurant scene here. um, And it's a large part of travel and tourist spend. Uh, But one thing that's very small in terms of penetration, but is growing uh, is plant-based foods. And we saw a number of new plant-based restaurants actually open uh, during the pandemic. So even though a lot of restaurants closed, um, you know, some new ones opened as well. Um, and even some of the most famous restaurants in the world uh, transformed their business and went plant-based uh, during the pandemic. So that was, you know, a bit of a surprising uh, pocket of, of, of bright spot uh, in the restaurant industry. So this has just become another option uh, for New Yorkers to eat. Uh, and this is just a topic that we, we do discuss a bit further in our food uh, revolution theme. So lots of kind of big, uh, big mega trends taking shape here. Um, but I will just pause there and, and turn it back to you, Dan. Well, thank you, Michelle, for sharing those thematic observations. Of course, do encourage our listeners, clients, reference the publication for more details. And Michelle, I know we will be following up on restaurants here in just a few moments. Before we do so, uh, Tom, I know there has been a lot of discussion about the exodus from the city to warmer clients with lower tax states. I'm speaking from Connecticut this morning. Does not check either one of those boxes, but even here I've seen an uptick in New York license plates. So I'm curious, Tom, how much of a concern does this exodus pose for investors? Yeah, it's, it's a topic that's getting a lot of attention, Dan. Uh, the, the trend towards relocations to lower tax jurisdictions, it, well, that's been underway for a while and precedes the advent of, of COVID-19. We've covered the issue a lot uh, in the chief investment office pretty, pretty extensively, say, in the last three or four months, uh, pardon me, three or four years, and have published at least three reports on it. It's critical to remember that income migration is arguably more important than population migration. And what I mean by that is how much taxable income is moving into or out of the state over time. Uh, it's clear that residents are moving to lower tax and frequently warmer, uh, not always in Connecticut, but frequently warmer jurisdictions from the Northeast and parts of the Midwest. The three states receiving the most net income in migration are Florida, Texas, and Arizona. And again, that trend's been underway for a while. Florida, in fact, receives $2 for ta- of taxable income arriving into the state for every dollar that leaves the state. Um, so it, it kind of runs ahead of the pack in terms of being the recipient of, of both people and income coming in. New York, but also New Jersey, Illinois, California, Maryland, Pennsylvania, and even Connecticut are leading donor states to the South. And as some of that may be attributable to baby boomer retirements, but there is also a trend of certainly the very affluent being able to relocate. Um, but regardless, uh, it's definitely an issue for New York and one that's going to get wrapped up in the current debate over tax burdens. Uh, but a few things are worth keeping in mind. First, some of those moves we have seen in the wake of the pandemic are temporary. Uh, I know a lot of people who did move to Connecticut, as you pointed out. Uh, some may stay, a lot may stay, but there will be some who will probably relocate back to whatever um, housing they had in the city. 
Um, the trend appeared to be accelerating during the lockdown, and as New York reopens, the pace is likely to slow a bit, I think. The second, the residential market recovery in New York City has actually been extraordinary. Average rents in the city just hit an all-time high last month. Uh, vacancies are approaching pre-pandemic lows. Uh, unit sales of co-ops and condos have increased by 98% on a year-over-year basis. So while part of parts of upstate New York, for example, continue to empty out, New York City has seen a renewed surge of interest in urban living. Uh, and, and office leases, for example, there was news out this morning that office leases, uh, the demand for those leases jumped 20% on a quarter-over-quarter quarter basis. Uh, so even though we've moved in large part to a hybrid work environment, it doesn't necessarily mean that the offices are going to be completely vacant. Uh, there will be a, a uh, the higher-end office buildings actually probably will do will do pretty well. The final point is that New York City does have a diversity of revenue upon which to rely. It's not just a personal income tax, even though it is very important. And as New York transitions to an economy focused on new types of media, technology, healthcare, higher education, which are becoming more and more important parts of the economy here in New York, its reliance on Wall Street will become marginally less important over time. Uh, and as that happens, you'll basically see a city that kind of evolves that as, as it has over 200 years into something that is probably more diverse than just the financial markets. Well, Tom, thank you for sharing those points of interest as it pertains to implications of migration trends. I know that has been of interest in recent times. So thank you for that. As we begin to close out the conversation this morning, I do want to circle back on restaurants because, Michelle, in particular, I was very intrigued by your interview with the CEO of Momofuku, uh, which is a well-known restaurant in New York. Now, like some new restaurant owners around the country, they have had to adapt to the new environment, as you pointed out a bit earlier in our conversation. Though I'm curious, Michelle, will some of those new ways of doing business, will they persist after we reopen the economy? A great question. And I would say that one takeaway uh, you know, I had from the interview, uh, and I think a takeaway that, that probably does stay after we are fully reopened uh, is how uh, the re- these restaurants and, you know, more broadly, how businesses are reaching the consumer. Uh, and I think the digital transformation theme, so you know, to get another uh, theme on display, I think the interview really exemplified uh, how this will continue to shape the restaurant industry going forward. So um, they're using, and, and Monofuku specifically as well, uh, using digital digital tools to reach the consumer. So social media can not only be used to build a strong brand, uh, but it can also be used to update the consumer. Remember all those uh, daily changes I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, right? Uh, so you can update your consumer there and you can engage with them, uh, ask them questions. You know, what meals do they do they miss the most uh, when they can't go into to the physical location? Uh, they, could, they could have done a live session uh, with the chef, right? So all just examples about how you can engage with the consumer uh, away from the physical location of a restaurant. Uh, and again, Monofuku specifically did tap into these tools uh, and one fact that they shared with me uh, during this interview is that 90% of Monofuku's following doesn't live in a city with a Monofuku location. Uh, but now they can reach these consumers uh, with things like meal kits or cooking classes. So these revenue streams that help restaurants uh, adapt to the pandemic 
are likely to stay as ways to diversify the revenue stream going forward. Again, whether it's uh, remaining to sell different meal kits or hosting those cooking classes, right? Uh, reaching new consumers is just going to continue to be uh, important ways for restaurants to expand their base uh, going forward. So I think this is just you're more broadly, again, indicative of these digital transformation themes uh, that we've identified in the past. Well, Michelle, Tom, fascinating conversation. I know we just scratched the surface because the publication offers so much, but uh, thank you for dropping by top of the morning today to share some highlights, some takeaways from the future of New York Peace. Congratulations again on the publication and look forward to catching back up with you both again soon. Thank you, Dan. Dan. And again today, we've been joined by Tom McLaughlin, Head of Fixed Income Americas, as well as Michelle Liberty, Thematic Investment Associate Americas, with the UBS Chief Investment Office. So as a reminder to our clients, our listeners, the UBS Chief Investment Office does author a variety of publications and blogs that touch on timely market developments, asset classes, and portfolio allocation. These resources can all be located on UBS.com forward slash CIO, including, of course, the publication which we've been making reference to during today's conversation, Future of New York. Uh, There is also a companion piece, an implementation guide, so I would encourage our clients to have a follow-up conversation with their financial advisor on that specifically. Though for clients of UBS, please contact your financial advisor if you do have any questions about what you've heard on today's podcast. Top of the Morning is part of the UBS Market Moves podcast channel, which is available where podcasts are found, including on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Pandora. Visit UBS.com forward slash studios to view the entire podcast offering, as well as the new UBS trending video series. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at UBS.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at UBS.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.